Welcome to this, the first edition of the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Tariq Megarisi, a policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Tariq, can you briefly run through the key players in the war that's going on now in Libya? Hi, Bill. Um, thanks a lot for having me on. You know, it, it's it's hard to to limit the list uh, or to really define who key players are here. I mean, for what's described as a civil war, there are so many other countries. You know, perhaps I could count as many as 10 if you involve uh, those playing minor roles or just sending a couple hundred of uh, mercenaries. But to try to talk about the, the key players, those who are really driving this war onwards, um, I think first and foremost, we'd have to go to Abu Dhabi uh, and the United Arab Emirates. I think it's safe to say at this point that they are the protagonists of the conflict. Uh, the reason why I would argue that is they are the main backer, both diplomatically and militarily, of uh, this general Khalifa Haftar, who is waging a war on Libya's capital. Given that Haftar is the attacker, he has been the one historically unwilling to sign any ceasefire, and the Emiratis enable him to do so. I think then that train of logic means that you can say that the Emiratis themselves are also the protagonists uh, of this conflict. And I mean, to the extent that back in January, there was a, a peace summit on Libya and Berlin, uh, which the Emiratis attended. They signed a document claiming that, uh, you know, they would respect an arms embargo in place on the country. And it allegedly took them less than 24 hours to break it. So it shows you that they're just as happy to continue driving this war as, as Haftar is. You know, if we carry on down the list of Haftar's backers, you would also have Egypt, um, you know, as Libya's neighbor, as a country that's had its own kind of counter-Arab Spring uh, rally through President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. Uh, I think there's a lot of resonance between him and uh, Khalifa Haftar, and they see opportunity in Libya, which has led them to, to support this project since 2014. Uh, on the other side, you know, the only real ally left that's defending the internationally recognized or so-called internationally recognized, because nobody seems to defend them despite uh, recognizing them, is, is Turkey. Ankara has provided formal security assistance. I think it's the only country that is formally involved uh, in the Libyan war, which is quite odd when you remember that there are um, about 10 countries who are involved surreptitiously. Uh, they have been supplying uh, weaponry um, as well as uh, other forms of assistance, uh, strategic assistance, drone power, and so on, to help combat this Emirati-fueled uh, assault on the city. Uh, that would limit down what we could call the key players in the war, those who are, who are the biggest actors today, but this web can go a lot bigger. Well, let me ask you, you mentioned the surreptitious players, uh, who are they? Uh, the Russians have mercenaries in play. Who, who else? Russia has mercenaries in play. They also supply Haftar, the raw currency that he uses to, to fund his operation. Uh, you have Sudanese mercenaries uh, who are there. You know, you've long had uh, various armed groups from Sudan, uh, Janjaweed groups, I believe they're referred to usually from the mini Minawi factions. More recently, there has been a string of stories that came out claiming that the Emiratis have essentially press-ganged 
young Sudanese men um, to go and fight in Libya. Uh, you've had recent reports of Eritrean uh, mercenaries coming in uh, to fight alongside the LNA. You've had, uh, you know, even the infamous um, Eric Prince has been involved in Libya's conflict at some point, uh, sending a squadron of air tractors and pilots uh, to the east of Libya. You have Syrian mercenaries uh, bought by the Turks from northern Syria who were fighting against Assad's forces. And more recently, you have reports that... Uh, pro-Assad forces are now fighting in Libya. And that, I think, more than anything else, shows you how bizarre this war has become, that you have the Syrian civil war taking place on Libyan shores. You mentioned Turkey. How far do you think President Erdogan is prepared to go to back Siraj and the government of national accord in Tripoli? It's a good question, because, you know, to date they've given limited assistance, um, which seems to be enough to allow these forces to defend the capital, but not to turn the overall tide of the war. Uh, and if you look in Turkey itself, this war doesn't seem to be very popular. I mean, amongst uh, the president's own party, the AKP, this war polls in the low 30s, and we haven't even really had any major casualties yet. But on the flip side, uh, in Ankara's perspective, Libya is interconnected, you know. Um, Libya is an attempt by the Emirates to reshape the region in their image, uh, which would freeze Turkey out, not just from North Africa, but from the rest of the MENA region. They see Libya intrinsically linked to what's going on in the eastern Mediterranean, uh, and once again, what they perceive to be them being frozen out by Greece. They are connecting uh, even issues as disparate as Cyprus uh, to Libya. And it's something that has cross-party support and is seen as a real national security interest. So they've not really been tested yet, but you've got an argument to say that uh, they will ensure that Tripoli does not fall. You've talked about the, the various groups that are backing Haftar. How has he been so effective in recruiting these allies to support him? He is, after all, a warlord. Yeah, um, but that's just what uh, everybody who's supporting him is looking for, essentially. Um, you know, he has shaped himself to be the, the perfect uh, screen for all these other countries to project their own interests onto. Uh, you know, for the Egyptians, uh, who were his first backers, he represented somebody who will follow in the footsteps of Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. He framed his assault as not only against terrorism, but against Islamists, um, you know, showing resonance with this Egyptian idea of a war on the Muslim Brotherhood, who are the root cause of all evil in the Arab world. According and, to Sisi and the, uh, the Emiratis. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't mean that as, <laughs> as a fact, uh, just the perspective of Cairo. And then also he... You know, he played a, a security narrative and a counter-terror narrative, which the Arab world has shown um, really resonates with, with other actors, be they regional dictators or Western powers, um, since 9-11 and the whole war on terror started. Uh, the Egyptians felt this much more keenly, considering that uh, the Libyan-Egyptian border is vast, and they believed it to be a key thoroughfare to fueling the insurgency in the Sinai. For others, like the Emiratis, it provides a perfect narrative and a perfect cover to justify tremendous amounts of military support 
to what is essentially a political project. This shows you how how wide Haftar is as a screen. Um, you know, Abu Dhabi doesn't speak much. Uh, there's a lot of speculation that has to go on as to what might drive them. Um, but for me, the logical progression seems to be that, uh, you know, Abu Dhabi really feared the Arab Spring and what happened in 2011. They worried that it might one day come to their own shores. Their own population might start, you know, asking for greater representation or even starting to ask some of these awkward questions about uh, who are these people who are spending the state's money? What gives them the right to spend it how they have done and what have they been spending it on? And I think Libya, of all the Arab Spring states, must have scared them the most, given the similarities. You know, it's a, a small local population and uh, a huge hydrocarbon wealth, which it, which it relies on. And these very same questions were being asked there. So really, since 2011, the Emirates has been trying to, to put the genie back into the bottle, to prop up the status quo in terms of old authoritarian style, usually linked to the military uh, autocrats, which would also have the added benefit of being uh, perhaps not reliant on Abu Dhabi, but grateful to them for the assistance they provided, um, which of course brings in the geopolitical edge. But yeah, Haftar is a, is a kind of open book, um, a one-trick pony who was very clearly looking to, to dominate a military scene and through a, a security platform take over the politics of the country. I mean, this has been the guy's ambition for quite some time. He even published a short book on it in the 90s, um, talking about the virtues of, of uh, force and politics or the politics of force. So, you know, he's, he's all things to all people, as long as they're particular people who have a particular agenda. Is he an effective military leader? Perhaps you'd have to ask a military expert that, but, you know, from my perspective, he's not really. I mean, he, he fell out of Gaddafi's good graces for, for losing the war on Chad. It's something that still hangs around his neck. Uh, and many Libyans still have questions to ask about alleged war crimes during, during that era. He often likes to come in and claim that he's going to win a war through a blitzkrieg in a few weeks, but just ends up, uh, you know, his, his sole tactic seems to be, at least from what we've seen in the last few years in Libya, to surround an enemy, to pummel them with the artillery and foreign air support, and then to take over the rubble. Uh, even other military experts who I've spoken to have kind of dismissed him as being very old school, somebody who still uses the military language of the 1970s and 80s and is, you know, completely does not understand modern tactics. And I think that part is clear in, in the war on Benghazi, the war on Demna, and what's happening today in Tripoli. Um, but he is a very determined person, and perhaps in war as in the rest of life, as long as you persevere, you get what you want in the end. The uh, siege of Tripoli, really, it's almost a year on now, isn't it? Can you bring us up to date on the current situation you know, one, one factoid that I like to mention just to keep people aware of it is that the war on Tripoli now has lasted for longer than the 2011 war on Gaddafi or the revolution lasted for, which should give you some, some idea of its, uh, of its scale in the Libyan psyche or in, you know, recent Libyan history. Um, Haftar has slowly tightened the noose, as it were. He is advanced into the suburbs of Tripoli, 
This is largely what took place towards the tail end of last year uh, when Turkish assistance had wound down because they were engaged in a diplomatic process uh, and Russian mercenaries were deployed who were extremely effective. But since the Turks have come back, they've kind of been stuck in those suburbs. Uh, we now see advances towards Libya's western border with Tunisia. Uh, there have been attempted advances from the east uh, onto a central city called Misrata. Uh, and if you kind of connect the dots, you see Haftar trying to do what he's always done, which is to, to be able to completely surround an enemy and then continue to prosecute a war on them. Uh, given the Turks have essentially nullified uh, the air superiority that Haftar once enjoyed, thanks to the Emiratis and the Egyptians, Haftar has become more and more reliant on, on shelling and sending things like Grad missiles uh, into Tripoli. Uh, these have some tactical agenda behind them, of course, but, you know, for instance, uh, last week you had almost 140 missiles fall on one day uh, on the airport. You have had civilian casualties because of this shelling as a result. You know, it's a very indiscriminate form of warfare. Um, and this is how the war looks likely to progress, uh, at least over the, the next few months. Uh, more heavy shelling, perhaps a couple of more attempted advances, although they haven't been very successful so far. And uh, I think everybody's now waiting to see how much of an impact the Turkish assistance will have, uh, because we haven't seen, uh, you know, the tanks and the new technology that they provided being deployed on the field by GNA forces. Um, and that will show us whether this will continue to be a slow and steady war of attrition by Haftar or if, um, you know, he might start to, uh, to fumble it. What impact is the war having on, on the economy and more specifically on the energy sector? You know, in, in the early stages, it didn't really have much of an impact. Haftar has been in de facto control of the majority of Libya's oil, the oil fields and most of the terminals through which oil is exported uh, since before he, he started this war. And, you know, he was in an agreement with the, the national oil company, which is Libya's sole kind of seller. But this kind of all changed uh, in mid-January of this year when Haftar declared an oil embargo uh, to really try to put pressure on what was then a growing diplomatic process looking to... Um, uh, to put forward a ceasefire on Libya. And the oil embargo has gone on since then. You know, it's now in its third month. Um, Libya is a country that's almost entirely reliant on oil sales, uh, which means that the economy has all but stopped. Uh, salaries have been frozen. Uh, and the government is essentially living off of its um, foreign cash reserves right now. Uh, but separate to the to the energy issue, you know, the, the normal economy or what remained of it um, after kind of nine years of degradation has has gotten significantly worse for the normal people. You know, in the suburbs of Tripoli, where, where Haftar first started his attack, is where many of the warehouses were that stored goods. Uh, it's become harder to bring in fresh goods, so the price of, uh, you know, of, of everyday items has been going up. And of course because of longer standing problems um, in the normal economy, very few people have, have active work. So life is, is getting harder by and large. Do you see any uh, avenues for de-escalation? You know, there are opportunities for de-escalation. I just don't see anybody who, who really cares enough to push them. You know, the last, 
the last attempt for a ceasefire was something done between President Erdogan and Putin. And President Putin then learned both how difficult Haftar can be, but how difficult Libya can be. Um, and, you know, nothing much came of the truce, um, which was whittled down from the day it was announced and is now, for all intents and purposes, dead. Uh, there is an ongoing diplomatic process which was started by the Germans at the request of the UN to try to really impose some, some order and some rules to the game on all of the international players taking part. You know, the, the highlight of that must have been the, the Berlin Conference in mid-January. But it's notable that the Berlin Conference only really came to be because Europeans got scared that Turkey and Russia would create a peace that would ultimately freeze them out, an Astana too, if you would. Um, and I think that's very telling because now that that threat has died down, so too has European interest. And although there was, you know, a great communique that was signed uh, with some lovely language about how we should all respect the arms embargo and on a political process forwards, the UN attempts to take that process forward has been undermined at every turn. Uh, we've already discussed how um, these commitments to uphold the arms embargo were broken very quickly by the Emirates. And, uh, you know, the Turks have been more than happy to retaliate in kind with arms shipments of their own. And, you know, the the immense frustration that must be going through the UN um, really came to a boil, I think, last week when uh, the special representative to Libya, Hassan Salame, just resigned. And I think it's been a long time coming. But we're at the stage now where, you know, even UN planes trying to fly into Libya are not given adequate security and sometimes are not even given landing rights uh, by Haftar. And because nobody seems to, even, to care enough to even say something about it, it's very difficult to advance a, a credible process um, when there is no international pressure in support of the process, but there are a tremendous amount of international moves to undermine the process. And finally, um, your prognosis on what's likely to happen, I mean, two come to my mind based on what you've just been telling us that there's a continued stalemate or that somehow Halifa pulls out a victory? I mean, I, I think it's it's worth exploring what a Khalifa victory means um, because I don't think it's something that many people have thought about. You know, even when you, when you have these uh, discussions in various capitals, um, they're kind of blasé, you know? Well, if Haftar wins, Haftar wins. We, we're used to dealing with our dictators. You know, it should be relatively okay, but you know, Haftar calls his, his forces the Libyan National Army or the Libyan Arab Armed Forces, but it's it's very far from what you or, you or I would recognize as an army. Uh, it's a combination of, you know, of self-interested groups, uh, militias, uh, tribal forces. And, you know, he's a very polarizing character. So it's taken him almost a year to really push into the suburbs of Tripoli. If he should go further into the city itself, that's a city of two million people. Uh, and it's worth bearing in mind that although Haftar controls the majority of the land, the majority of the population lives in areas that are against him. So we would see a very messy, very bloody conflict um, that destroys this beautiful city um, on the Mediterranean. You have the potential for Libyans starting to flee across the sea. Uh, you know, even if he does come in, take Tripoli eventually, rules over the rubble, 
he's going to have an insurgency almost immediately, and his own alliance um, is also going to be scrambling to take control of, of what they're all there for, which is the country's oil wealth. Uh, and the war won't stop there. You know, there's still the, the city of Misrata, uh, which prominent people in Haftar's alliance have spoken about getting revenge on. You know, this would just be the first chapter in a, a very long and bloodied uh, story. Um, but what's most likely to happen, in, in my opinion, it's, as you said, a, a stalemate of sorts. Um, Think the war will get more destructive. I think as summer comes, we're going to start seeing the beginnings of a humanitarian crisis. Um, you know, Haftar might try to shut the water off on Tripoli again. There is already, you know, um, collapsing power grid because of the oil embargo. Uh, garbage is piling up in the streets. Uh, things are going to get a lot more tense. Um, and in the meantime, I think that uh, you know, the UN process will, will continue to flounder, unfortunately, as they look for a new uh, special rep representative who will likely want to take things his own way. Um, the diplomatic uh, forces that are in support of Haftar and are in support of this idea of, uh, of a new military dictatorship for Libya are going to try to continue to press this on the global stage. And the number of people who really care enough about Libya or who, who have the foresight to recognize what Haftar's victory might mean are really, uh, you know, too isolated and too weak to push back in a meaningful way. So it, it's a grim prognosis for the future. Um, you know, the Americans have never been a leader on Libya. Under Trump, they're not likely to be. Uh, so we all look to Europe. And right now, there's discussions in Brussels for a new European mission to Libya. That is, you know, rhetorically at least about enforcing the arms embargo. And if you look in to those discussions and how they're taking place, you'll see the reason for this kind of, for this pessimism. Because, you know, you can have an hour-long discussion about a mission to Libya uh, in Brussels, and I think Libya will be mentioned maybe once, but the idea of whether, you know, European vessels in the Mediterranean will create a pull factor for migrants will be the center point of the discussion. Uh, and then if you look at where the will is from member states and at an EU level to really try to use Borrell, uh, the new HRVP, to try to use this, these pretensions from Europe about being a geopolitical commission, there is none at all. You have Greece who are actively looking to punish Turkey uh, for what they're doing, the French in quiet support of them, and everybody else is missing in action. Um, so you have to follow the... Uh, the lead that's already there, and unfortunately that takes you to the very depressing ground that not much of use is going to come from Europe in the near-term future, uh, which means that it's going to be President Erdogan, President Putin, Mohammed bin Zayed, and Abdel Fattah al-Sisi who are going to, uh, to ultimately decide what happens in Libya. Uh, and judging from their past experiences of trying to work together, uh, a frozen conflict seems the most likely outcome. Tarek, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. My guest today has been Tarek Megarisi, a policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you for listening to the Arab Digest podcast. If you're not already a subscriber and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to arabdigest.org. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.